0: Lord, we thank you for your kindness, that you do want your people to hear your word and your truth, to listen to your voice through your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I thank you for these people who have already put in time and set apart um, energy and effort to wanting to know you among your people. And uh, Father, I pray that you would continue that work in us that as we look, continue to look at Matthew twenty four, that you by your Spirit would be working. Open our eyes to catch, uh, to understand the things about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, you do not want us to miss. And I pray, Father, also for your help in navigating so many parts of this passage that are very challenging and, um, push us, some of us in very tender places, uh, where we might be afraid or, um, uh, need encouragement. Father, would you be with us now? And we pray, I pray for my words that, uh, you would guide and guard those, uh, that all I say would honor Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So, uh, Brett loves my husband, Brett loves to water ski. I do not. At best, it is barely tolerable because it starts with you jumping out of a boat, leaving behind all the fun people in the boat, and you gasp from the shock of the cold, and you've got all these things that you're trying to navigate, you know, your life jacket, you have the rope, and you're trying to wrangle these skis, and you realize, oh my gosh, the person who used them before had smaller feet than I do, so you're, you know, you're doing all these adjustments in the water and they're trying to escape. Finally, things get barely under control and you get yourself in position. You take a brace yourself, sigh, or I do, and you shout, hit it. And uh, suddenly, gallons and gallons of lake water are rushing over you or going everywhere, up your nose, all the places. And, um, but finally you're up and uh, the wind is rushing and you're just your bathing suit. And so you get your bearings and you're holding on. And I think now what? I'm going 20 plus miles an hour and I'm pretty sure God did not design my body to do that (laughs) on water. And I wonder, do I stay in the wake? Do I go outside of the wake? there's dangers and on both sides it all seems pretty pointless to me um, and very soon my, my arms start to ache because I don't do this a lot. And my legs feel wobbly. And I'm not sure how long I can hold on. And I'm trying to calculate, like, what's the reasonable amount of time that I can actually, before I let go of the rope or, or something really bad happens. And my arms are bleeding. Uh, just let go. The people in the boat seem so far away. And they are, they're legally obligated to look at me in my swimming suit in this awkward position, and I'm wondering, you know, I put in their minds all these critical thoughts that they're probably not having, but that's part of the story. And so I'm like, why am I out here? This seems really pointless and hard. How can this possibly end well? Um, And I am guessing I'm not alone, not necessarily about water skiing. You may love it, which is totally fine. It's a silly example. But when things get hard, we feel awkward. We tend to struggle. And the harder things are, the greater the struggle. We often want to, just as humans, quit, compromise, find ways to make the hardness stop. Life in a broken world is inherently hard. And um, looking at the news just today. The headlines, uh, Russia's bombardment of the Ukraine, long COVID, the mega drought in the U.S. West, this big storm in the South, um, the this person died, and the autopsy here, and this trial, and there's a lot of hard. Just living in this broken world is hard. Um, and of course, sometimes hard there, it is wise to change jobs. It is wise to switch your major. Um, it is wise to leave a hard situation, get out of a toxic relationship. Um, but in our passage tonight, Jesus prepares his disciples for things that seem unbelievably hard. Jesus calls his people in the face of those unbelievably hard things to hold on. Hold on to him. He calls us into something far, far harder than water skiing with much, much higher stakes. And he calls us to hold on to right teaching, to hold on to faithful living, to hold on to his gospel mission. But he says it won't be hard forever. He is coming back and he will reward those who endure the faithful And so as we study Matthew 24, I think that we can learn that Jesus calls his followers to hold on in light of his return. Hold on in light of his return. And but we might say, Lord, the last days are just so hard. They are too much for us. And that's true. This, the stuff that we're gonna read, it is too much. It's too much for us. Um, And may the fear and concern of those things not propel us away from him, but toward him. And because not only do we need to hold on to him, and there's an active real part of our participation, but Jesus also tells us, uh, teaches us that he has a firmer grasp on us than we have on him. And he says in John 10, 27, 28, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And so um, just wanted to th- like frame this to say, yes, it is really hard. Yes, Jesus is asking us to do something that's, that is too much for us, but he will give us strength he will help us endure and he is holding on to us. And we can look and we can see that in Matthew. If you look, just flip with me, uh, open your Bibles. If you haven't done that already, um, we'll be in Matthew 24, uh, the whole chapter, but look at the his last words in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, uh, when Jesus sends out his disciples as representatives for all of his followers who would follow him um all heaven and earth has been given to me Jesus says therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you that is really hard but and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age so that my friends is hold on to that encouragement <laughs> Don't hear the hard words and think that Jesus is saying that the message is it's gonna be hard, uh, the stakes are high, good luck with that. But the message of Matthew 24 and 25 uh, is it's gonna be hard, but I'm committed to you and I love you enough to be with you to the very end. Okay, so uh, we are going to uh, look so open your Bibles. You already done that. Sorry. Um, we're going to, this we're starting in a part one, part two way. This is part one of Matthew's, uh, Olivet discourse. It is the fifth of Matthew's five teaching discourses. So kind of a big deal. Um, it's called the Olivet discourse because Jesus was sitting, we'll see in verse three, on the Mount of Olives, see my very not so good drawing um, right there, uh, which per- has the Mount of Olives looking really big. It's actually not that big, but certainly sitting on the Mount of Olives, it's likely that you know, you're going to see jo- the Jerusalem uh, and the Temple Mount in a prominent view. Um, there are, by the way, slides that are passed around. <laughs> so, so just uh, enjoy those and pass those around to people. Okay, we're gonna talk about uh, Matthew 24. It it goes on, 25 is the last half of the Olivet Discourse. We're doing just chapter 24. And so we're gonna do it in two uh, divisions, a little bit unusual. So I drew the illustration up there to hopefully help you. And the first is clarifying our vision. And I think the parts that go with that are the first two verses, but also then the final illustration 45 to 51. That's the frame. It's like the envelope that encloses uh, this teaching. And then the second division, which is the much longer one, uh, three to 44, shaping our expectations. And those are broken down into two subdivisions that will get to uh, watchfulness and waiting. So without further ado, we're gonna jump in and um, we're picking up in the last week of Jesus' ministry uh, before the cross. He's already in Jerusalem. And um, we see in verse uh, 24, verse one, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. And so um, we, if you remember, if you were with us, uh, the last couple of weeks, Uh, Jesus had entered Jerusalem triumphantly in chapter 21, but then he had been, during this Passover week, when the town swells with out-of-town worshipers uh, in the spring, he was staying in Bethany or Bethphage, possibly at the home of Mary, uh, Martha, and Lazarus. So he would make this two-mile commute uh, every day, probably. And so uh, he's coming down and going down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And um, the disciples, apparently, it's probably in the afternoon that he has just had the discussion that he had in chapter 23, at least. And so he's coming down, they're coming with him. And um, the, in the afternoon sun, it was probably glittering and stunning breathtaking. This was, uh, the, the disciples were looking at the second, what is called the second temple. This is not the one that Solomon built, but rather it's called Herod's temple because he funded the renovations to it. And reportedly the temple's beauty and size were world renowned. There was white limestone. It's ornamented with gold. Um, and so, uh, they they're looking at this and it was probably like, you know, you've done this, right? You see an amazing thing. And you're like, Hey, to your friends, like, look at that. Look at the sunset. Look at that view. And, um, Jesus directs his disciples to a deeper spiritual reality in verse two. And so he responds, do you see all these things? He asked. I will. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as humans, like the disciples, we are often uh, impressed by appearances, beautiful faces, uh, cars and clothing, impressive resumes, big churches. Jesus is not fooled by outward appearances. And the, where the disciples saw beauty in a permanence, um, and it was a huge architectural achievement to move all those stones. And we don't actually know. Brett and I have gone there and seen the the big foundation stones that are still there in the Temple Mount. We don't know actually how they did it. It's, it, it is an, an impressive achievement. Um, and yet uh, Jesus saw deeper. The temple was supposed to be the center of the... The Israel's relationship with the Lord. It was supposed to be the symbolic palace where God as king ruled and reigned. Um, and yet, as we have just seen in the last chapters, that uh, the temple housed not faithfulness toward God, but it was characterized by people who were prideful, rejecting his character, uh, a sickness unto death. And uh, so this had been exposed throughout Jesus' ministry as resistance to him has been growing, but is particularly crystallized here in these chapters 21 to 23 at the temple where Jesus went in, he cleansed the temple, remember, and he's doing miracles there. He's healing people, he's teaching with authority. And instead, rather than the response, particularly of the leaders being repentance and faithfulness toward God, It's resistance, hostility, trying to hold on to the trappings of power. And so God's, what should have been God's symbolic palace, where the most faithfulness should have been, uh, was more like a whitewashed tomb. And Jesus saw through that deceptive uh, appearances to see the fragility and how terminal unto death um, God People, stubborn people were provoking him to judgment. And so um, in that, uh, let's see, they were called to, um, the the people were called to be about God's business. Hang on, I lost my page. <laughs> okay. Um, and they were called to be, particularly leaders, to be God's shepherd over his flock, exercising justice and mercy and compassion. And... Um, they were not doing that. And so if you look back in chapter 23, this is kind of, I suggest to you, a courtroom scene where, um, the King has come back and he's found his servants, not in faithfulness, but in wicked hostility. And it seems to invoke, I was thinking, um, Matthew 10, uh, verses 10 and 11 10 through 15 where Jesus told his apostles that uh, as they were going out, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. And the echo of the woes in chapter three echo, I suggest to you in uh, chapter 11, where Jesus denounced the cities where his miracles had been reformed. Performed, but they did not repent. Bethsaida, Coruscant, um, and Capernaum. And so, <clears throat> in that, Jesus has figuratively, in that chapter, shaken the dust off his feet and his robes, pronounced woe on Jerusalem. The gavel is fallen, and judgment has been pronounced. And Jesus withdraws himself from them. And so when the disciples are like, I can imagine how heart-wrenching that was. If you look at the lament that he has over Jerusalem, um, then when the disciples were like, wow, Lord, that's amazing. Look at that beautiful temple. Um, They were misled by appearances. And Jesus responds to say, do you not see these things? Um, there's actually a, a, like it's translated, do you see these things? There is a knot in the original Greek. Um, and he's referring to, I think, uh, these things, what things? That he's, the corruption that's in the temple and that um, it's inviting God's judgment. Do you not understand God will hold his servants to account? And um, in less than 40 years, uh, Titus's Roman army would come and destroy the temple And notice, um, and so I think in those two little verses to get the framework for them, why, what was the problem? Um, Let's look to the illustration at the end of chapter 24, which asks, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Verse 45, whom his the master is put in charge of the servants and his household to give them their food at the proper time that was what the Jewish religious leaders were supposed to be doing, and more than that, Israel as a nation was supposed to be god 's witness among the nations that the temple could be called a house of prayer that nations could go there and learn to and about the Lord and worship him. Um, Verse 46, it will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and begins to eat and drink with drunkards The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites while there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, um, as the notice here that the servant's task was specifically to feed the other servants, And um, just as the religious leaders were supposed to care for their people, not their own interests, um, that is exactly what they haven't been doing all the way through Matthew's ministry. Um, So a principle I think that we can learn from this uh, framing division is that God calls his people to be about his business, not their own. God calls his people to be about his business, not their own. If you have a dog and you are going out of town, um, perhaps you have hired a dog sitter uh, or someone to come and live in your home and care for your dog while you're away. And if you come home early uh, because your your plans changed and you come home and you see the water bowl is empty, the food bowl is filled with chocolate, their there are poinsettias all over the house, uh, there's a shock color. your dog is gone, he's not even there. And that um, the dog sitter is asleep in your bed, and he's had a huge party in your house. And there's his party guests are everywhere. And like you, uh, legitimately, you would be upset. Can you imagine if you had entrusted someone to do that? Um, at minimum, next time you're going to hire somebody else, you also might consider involving the authorities. And if we rightly would respond that way for someone who would so mistreat the, uh, the authority and responsibility to care for a pet, how much more is God's indignation and intervention justified when people bearing his own likeness, his family resemblance are mistreated and abused? God's standards, God calls his people to be about his business. And as he cares for people in this earth, but specifically people made in his image, um, he will hold those uh, leaders and and other people, his people to account. Um, God's standards hasn't changed. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, um, we are saved for a purpose. How has God been shaping your heart? To let go of your plans, your goals, the the kind of ones that you made independent of him. And how has he aligned your heart with his mission? Um, have you felt loss in that? Probably. Um, but it's to be expected that he's going to do that and he'll give us new eyes um, to see through deceptive experiences. Um, Being about God's business is not typically something that just happens. It requires intentional cooperation as God works on us from the inside out. You might wonder, okay, well, what is God's business? Um, There are large and small things. And of course, you know, the large things like the great commission that we, that we read to be about his, the mission of sharing the gospel with people around us, uh, and even going to nations far away to share, but it's also small things like our words and our thoughts and our deeds, the way we drive, the way we interact with our coworkers, the way we take care of our pets, um, how we respond to people in need. Um, and, if we're honest, uh, you know, we, we, well, we might think that the Christian life sometimes, and I've thought this way, maybe you can relate to that, that the Christian life is, is more like water skiing than it is like a, a job. Like, you know, it's a leisure activity. It's a fun thing to do, like coming to Bible study on a Monday night. That's a fun thing to do. Um, you know, other people do other kind of intramurals or whatever. Well, you do a Bible study. All right, that's fun. Um, And yet, uh, like the Christian life is not as much like water skiing as we might think. Um, It has a larger purpose. When when the Lord leads us and we're doing his business, it won't be like when you pull your boat and you leave, that lake looks like you never came. And yet God in his wisdom uses small and large acts of, of faithful people those who trust him to further his gospel mission. Um, And the world is different and closer to being more full of God's plan because you have cooperated with him in those small and large things. Um, But if we're honest, we've all fallen short in that. And I um, looked at, I know this is a tiny division, but I, I think it's really helpful. If you can find Ezekiel 22, um, this is another time when, uh, God's prophet, uh, Ezekiel had condemned Jerusalem. Um, and 22, starting in verse 23, um, there's problems with princes, uh, in verse 25, like luring Ryan's tearing its prey. They devour people. Um, Her priests, verse 26, do violence to my law and my profane my things. Um, Verse 27, her officials within her, Jerusalem, are like wolves tearing their prey. They share blood and kill people to make unjust game. Verse 28, her prophets whitewash these deeds uh, by false visions, line divinations. Verse 29, the people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. Okay, so this is the Lord talking. Um, we can see that, but look at verse 30 and uh, particularly. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Here is what I suggest to you, that Jerusalem was facing the same situation because the heart of the people hadn't changed. And yet God looked and there was a man to stand in the gap. And there was one because he sent it. He sent him, his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, just as uh, those um, now, because Jesus have come, your life and my life do not need to be uncovered stone by stone in the judgment of God. Because Jesus has borne that for us. Yes, we have been unfaithful to him, to the Lord, and yet, on jesus christ uh, the he has stood in that gap, and he has taken on the judgment that we all deserved, and He has allowed us he has made the way for us to hold on to him without shame, without guilt, with life and righteousness, that we can be remade. As he has recreated us to be hidden in him and bear his righteousness, his life, and his mission. Um, Jesus calls his followers to hold on to him um, just as he holds on to us. Okay, moving on to the next uh, big division, verses 3 to 35. Um, Jesus is preparing his disciples to live in light of. Um, the signs and time of his return. So it's shaping our expectations. And Jesus' pronouncement about the temple likely stunned his disciples. It seems that starting in verse three, sometime later, probably not much later because they were just walking up (laughs) the mountain, that they came to him um, and asked him this uh, question privately. Verse three, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, When will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So um, this Jesus doesn't, we don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking or how much they understood, um, but Jesus does not rebuke them. He addresses the questions in the reverse order and know that they can see, they likely can see the temple Uh, the whole time it's in view and it's a symbol of failed faithfulness to God. Um, And so that's sort of the context, the physical context. Uh, But he answers these two questions in reverse order. And so in verses four to 35, he teaches about what? The signs of his coming and the end of the age. And then verses 36 to 44, he teaches about the when the when these things will be. Now, Jesus' explanation is not linear. And his wording sometimes seems poetical and symbolic, apocalyptic. Other times, perhaps it's literal. Um, It's difficult to discern which. And so both the what and the when answers are difficult to interpret. And there are many different perspectives on what exactly Jesus might mean. You and I, we need faith and humility to hear rightly and to learn the lessons, um, that he would have us learn. He is unveiling the future. I think a lot like he's taught in parables, revealing some things, but concealing a whole lot. And I suggest to you, this is purposeful. Um, he is not presenting his disciples and Matthew is not recorded for us so that we would have a calendar that, uh, or a roadmap for us to know cognitively, but rather um, Jesus' trustworthy words are training his disciples to depend on him, to know that we need him um, even in interpretation of his Faithful words. Um so we're the first we'll look at watchfulness, uh, verse thirty verse three to thirty-five, or actually four to thirty-five. And um Jesus is going to teach about the signs preceding his return, the what in four sections. And so in verses four to fourteen, he speaks generally about the signs that are coming. And I suggest to you I thought of three D's, three words that start with D. In this, um, there are going to be deceivers, verse 4, uh, false Christs. There will be distress, verse 5 and 8, 5 to 8, which is suffering and upheaval. Um, there will be a growing dichotomy, verses 9 to 14. Uh, what does that mean? A sharpened separation between the faithful and the unfaithful. And so, on the one hand, there will be increased unrighteousness marked by uh, persecution under death of Jesus' followers. Um, Jesus, this is, should not be a surprise. He's warned about that even in verse chapter 23, verse 34. Um, but if you look here, then you, he's of course speaking to the disciples, will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. Presumably, that's because the unrighteousness cannot handle it. It's to the extent and extreme. And that um, it will also look like this, verses 10 to 12, turning away from the faith, betraying and hating each other, false prophets, um, more of them, increased wickedness, uh, love growing cold. Uh, But there will be those by God's grace who stand firm to the end, verse 13, and they will be saved. And um, as God is the one who must give us the strength to endure, he's gonna be at work. And we can see that in verse 14 because he's going to use presumably the faithful witness of the righteous of the righteous even in contrast or dichotomy with the unrighteous to spread the gospel verse 14 to the the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come and so with each of those three things deceivers distress dichotomy Jesus has a charge for his followers. Um, verse four, he says, do not be deceived by false Christs, um, probably persons or philosophies. Uh, there is no hope for humanity outside Jesus. So study the real Jesus. We should depend on him and he will train our eyes to spot imposters. And number two, about distress, he says in verse six, do not be alarmed or discouraged. Um, in God's wisdom, somehow it's necessary. And you and I may not understand it, but he, God is in control. And, you know, we've even just see this now, like wars and pandemics. So uh, what's going on in in Russia and Ukraine? Like there's rumors of wars, there you go, and pandemic um, suffering. These things, distress, when we are not alarmed or discouraged, they create opportunities for faithful followers of Jesus to live out witness of to God's heart and mission. And then in the number three, uh, this is by implication through uh, verse 13. And in contrast, um, Jesus calls us to remain faithful and endure. Um, there will be a dichotomy. And yes, there's gonna be a sharp and sharper and sharper separation between the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, as unrighteousness increases, may God grow our righteousness. May our righteousness also um, display his glory. And all of this is too much for us. Only Jesus can give us strength to endure that. So that's general, verses four to 14. Uh, The second in 15 to 28, Jesus speaks of specific signs. And these three Ds are amplified. It seems they are in reverse order. And so um, he's talking in verse 15 to 16 about a very sharp dichotomy. Um, So he says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, okay, so I hope you had a good time discussing what that might have meant in your group and looking up the prophecy, the obvious reference uh, that Jesus is making to the prophecy in Daniel. It seems like there is some intensified, defiant unrighteousness that has permeated the very center of where sacredness and faithfulness and righteousness ought to be. And it was thought even at that time that the old, that old Testament prophecy had been already fulfilled in 167 BC when, um, the foreign ruler, uh, Forgetting his name, somebody else. Antiochus Epiphanes IV um, desecrated the, the temple by sacrificing a pig there to the god of Zeus. Um, but Jesus mentioning it here suggests that it has multiple fulfillments. And scholars and some people think that one of the ways that this is fulfilled is when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70, about 40, 40 years later. But prophecy is like looking at a mountain range. And if you can see that picture that's being passed around, sometimes when you're looking at mountains, it's hard to judge uh, what's the distance between mountains, uh, which ones fall farther uh, to each other, or which one's taller? Uh, the near and shorter can be look like they're right next to the far and taller. and so, maybe there is still a still future abomination that causes desolation fulfillment. Um, It exactly what that still future fulfillment would look like seems to be mysterious. But I suggest to you that Jesus saying flee to the mountains also evokes Genesis 19, where the Lord's angels told Lot to flee from Sodom. Flee for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop. Flee to the mountains or you will be stra- swept away. And in that case, uh, the defiant Sodom had pushed God's patience to its very limit. Um, and Matthew 15 to 18, 24, 15 to 18 seems to carry that same sense. Um, God's patience has been provoked to the point that the, there is the heart of what should be sacred to God has been stripped away and God's judgment is imminent. And in that, the faithful must separate. There must even be at that point, a physical dichotomy that's intensified between the faithful and the unfaithful. Uh, There's distress that he talks about in verses 19 to 22, a horror unparalleled that seems still future to us. Um, in verse 19, um, is very scary as a, (laughs) my nurturing heart just is, is wrenched. And perhaps, um, in that case, uh, like this may be a, a, like a reflective or a poetic illustration of how believers may feel like they are being torn apart. Their loyalties are being sorely tested, um, and they're having to make very, very, very tough decisions. Um, verse 20 calls us to pray for God's mercy. Um, what would be if it would take place in the winter on the Sabbath? That would be very complicated um, winter because it's obviously it's cold. But on the Sabbath, then you're debating like, how, how am I faithful to the Lord? What does it look like for me to do this? And you're juggling, um, you're trying to navigate that and calls us to pray for God's mercy on the timing and the circumstances. Verses 21 and 22 give us hope that like with Lot and Sodom, he didn't deserve it, but God has not forgotten his covenant promises. Um, And so for the elect, those are those God has set apart for himself. Suffering will not continue forever. God has set limits on the suffering of his people. He knows our weakness. And he desires that we would stay faithful to him. Um, and uh, in Christ, he will give us strength. Um, and so, <clears throat> dichotomy, distress, and then verses 20, 23 to 28 seem deceivers as false Christs are going to proliferate. And so um, if you look uh, verse 23 at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning... That comes from the east is visible even to the west. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And so <clears throat> when Christ returns, it will not be a secret, it will not be revealed to only some people. Um, rather, he will come like a flash of lightning, clearly visible and sudden. And so in this third section, uh, going on verses 29 to 31, Jesus narrows the signs nearest his return, the culmination of these times. So if you can think about it, as we've gone through these, these three sets have, um, they're concentric circles that are coming into this culmination point. And so verses four to 14 are like further out the beginning of birth pains. And there's, as you get closer, there's a nearer 15 to 28. There's an intensification and up close versus 29 to 31. You're so close. You can see the pores on the face. Um, you know, okay. That was a bad example. Um, but like you're so close. It is right there. Um, and cataclysmic, I wasn't meaning to be irreverent and what, but he is human. So, um, he does, Jesus does have pores. Uh, Cataclysmic signs precede Jesus' imminent return. And so in this time, Jesus is gathering, drawing together multiple Old Testament quotations and images about the end. These verses are very difficult to interpret, but it appears that unique cosmic upheavals will immediately precede Jesus' return. Um, and immediately after the distress of those days, verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. In um, verse 30, at that time, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. There will not be a single nation that is successful in defying him. Um, they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And so um, certainly uh, in verse 30, by coming on the, he's saying he's kind of come on the clouds. Jesus is claiming to be the Davidic king, Messiah, the one who will redeem God's people and eternally rule with justice and righteousness. We don't have time to look at it, but you can look up uh, Daniel 7, 13 to 14. I think your notes do refer to that also. Um, Christians, we believe that Jesus' return will be literal. It will be sudden. It will be visible. It will be bodily. He will come back in the same body the glory, his glorified flesh as the forever God-man to reign over God's righteous kingdom and he, his return will be personal. He will be the same Jesus that he has been. The same Jesus who has healed the sick and the lame and the blind and cares for the prisoner and the oppressed. The same who suffered and died and raised and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of his heavenly father, the same one who loves you, the same one who is vindicated by God um, in every aspect. He will return to rescue all of those who trust in him from the reign of sin and death forever. And so judgment and deliverance in the Bible always go together. This one, this is the deliverance. He's coming back to rescue and claim his own. There will be judgment for those who refuse him, who have refused his grace, Um, but judgment and deliverance altogether. Um, How can we know? Um, this, This is a point that's easily mocked in our culture, right? That we sitting in this room, most of us probably will expect that Jesus will come back in just this way. Um, how can we know that this is true? Um, if you have doubts about that, be honest with them. Bring them to the Lord. Jesus can stand up to your doubts. He is strong enough for that. Um, and and wrestle with it. Uh, but two points I offer from this text to help us be confident that this is indeed what will happen. We can look at verse 25 and 35. Um, Jesus himself believes it and has said it will happen. He says, see, I am telling these to you and uh, told you ahead have had a time, verse 25. And he says, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus believes it. It's can we trust Jesus? Can we trust what he said? Um, I suggest that he is trustworthy, that he has not forsaken uh, any of the things that, yeah, any of his words. And uh, even when we're confused on the details, these points are clear. Um, his return will be preceded by suffering and opposition, point one. Point two, his return is certain. It's unstoppable. It does not matter how many people are like following him or not. Like, you know, like he's not on a social media campaign to try to, you know, like, Oh, or am I going to come back? Like he's, it's unstoppable regardless of human response. Um, if, because it's dependent on his character and his power and relationship with God. And the third point is Jesus return will be unexpected, unexpected. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, we don't have a roadmap or calendar, but it seems that in verse uh, verses 32 to 35, illustrate this whole section. So when you're confused, you're like, oh, I don't know what to do with verses four to 31. Go to the illustration, 32 to 35. And Jesus, by saying in the illustration, commends watchfulness. Look at the fig tree, be watchful. You're not gonna be able to, pick the day or the hour we're going to get to that leads into the next section but be watchful of the signs um, and the evidence of his return drawing near so that we can hang on and hold on Um, and then the the section 36 to 44 he teaches his disciples to live in light of when he will return Um, in this shorter section Jesus gives a shorter answer and that basically is you won't know so be ready um, the summary, verse 42 sums it up. 43 and 44 illustrate that. So 42, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord may come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have been let, let his house been broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come in an hour. He, you do not, Sorry put that away. Uh, some, an hour you do when you do not expect him. Okay. So, uh, principle I think that we can learn from this section is that, uh, Christ's certain return offers hope in an uncertain world. Christ's certain return offers hope in an uncertain world. Where are you finding it difficult to live a Christian life that's pleasing to God? Knowing that Christ is certain to return and that the world will end means that your earthly life, material wealth, will in the end all be meaningless. Uh, The money, the possessions, the resumeable achievements, these are not gonna last. But it also means that your sacrifices for God's work now will remain meaningful when Christ returns. The uncertainty and suffering is not meaningless. How does placing your hope in the fact that Christ will return give you hope to live for him in your current circumstances. If you have not yet come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the bad news is you do not have forever because Christ's return is certain whether you believe it or not. Jesus will be coming again. You can see the signs. The good news is he is still calling to you now, holding out the hope of the gospel to you before the end comes. Please do not ignore His invitation and warning. Come and receive God's mercy in Christ while he is still mercifully withholding his judgment because ultimately humanity and the earth are heading towards Christ's return. So, wrapping up, Christ's certain return gives us hope, Christ's certain presence gives us strength. Um, It is too much, life is too much. And certainly, as we near the end, uh, it is too much. following Jesus is hard, and whether or not we see these actual things with our eyes in the timeline that we have planned out for our for our earthly life um, sometimes they will happen. I suggest to you, and you and I at some point will be tempted to let go, but it matters that we hold on. we should trust him. Uh, trust also that Christ will not forsake those who trust in him, that he has his hand on his own and he knows how to rescue godly women and men from trials. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness and that you do not hide from us the, thing, the fact that following Jesus is hard. But I thank you, Lord, for your grace and your kindness. Uh, that you have hidden us in Christ and that the stones of our life do not need to be scattered under your judgment, but rather that in Christ who has borne that, uh, we can stand up and uh, be empowered to be your witnesses on mission to a hurting and lost world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.